What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? This is Muscle, and this is another Two Line Music Huts Entertainment Report podcast. And today, we have a really special guest in the building. Listen, this lady here has been giving you music, hits after hits for the past 40 years plus. Listen, she gave you songs like Someone Loves You, Honey, Telephone Love, More Than I Could Say, Make It Up To You. And right now, she has a, a new song right now call over on the divorce court rhythm you know we have in the building today we have jc lodge in the building today what's going on my sister um everything is good everything is good considering yeah pretty good thank you thank you so very much for joining us here on the entertainment report podcast tonight you are very welcome i'm happy to be here all right, because somebody like you, I just remember, like, since I was a kid, you would go to, like, uh, your parents' basement party, and you would hear songs that you would remember, but you wouldn't know who it was until I became older, and I said, whoa, all of those classic songs right there. That's J.C. Lodge right there. <laughs> You understand. All right. In this program here, we like to take it right from the beginning and then bring it up right here to 2021. All right? Sure. All right. Okay. So I know Let's you were born. All right. You were born in the UK. Yeah. And what, how old were you when you moved to Jamaica? I was 10. You were 10. Yeah. Okay. So then you remember. Okay. So then let's go back a bit. UK now. What yeah. do you remember of your UK life before you actually moved to Jamaica? I remember that uh, I loved music when I was a child. I remember that I was very much into the Beatles and all the pop music at that time. And I I lived with, I had a single parent, my dad. I lived, who's Jamaican. And I lived with him in a flat and he was a music collector. So he had a lot of jazz and uh, rhythm and blues uh, and some uh, Caribbean music as well so I had a lot of exposure to that and I had my favorites from his collection as well as my pop music and um, uh, what else can I say I well I, I used to live with an English family during the weekdays and um, you know to go to school because as I said I had a single parent and I think dad found it you know well obviously he found it difficult to work and have me as a girl child uh, so I had that English uh, foster family and I had him and then I think things got a little bit more tricky for him as I got older and we were you know, s still living in this um, single room flat so he told everybody that we were going on a trip to Jamaica a holiday and I was so excited you know yeah I'm going on a holiday and then I was left there. It was no longer exciting. It was mm -hmm. a huge trauma for me, I remember, at that time, you know. And what part of Jamaica was it that you went to? I was taken to Kingston because my dad's family, um, originally they were living downtown Kingston, and then they moved uptown. So they were living in a, an area called Havendale. Mm -hmm. So his sister lived in Havendale with his parents and um, his sister's children, my cousins. And um, so I met these people for the first time and, you know, I mean, it was lovely to meet new family, but at the time they were strangers to me, you know, and my dad was my world. And he said, well, you know, I'm going to leave you here because you're going to get a much better education in Jamaica. And I was like, no, I don't want to stay. 
And I remember I had a really bad cold and I was so miserable when he was leaving. I remember grabbing onto his shirt at the airport and I didn't want to let go, you know. <laughs> but he went back to England and left me there. And, you know, years later, I look back and I'm glad. I'm really glad that I had 33 years of life in Jamaica because it's a huge part of who I am, you know. <laughs> And was it a culture shock when you first got there? Because remember, at Certainly. 10 now, you're you're forming Certainly. your identity and all yeah. of these stuff here. So it's like, I yeah. went from this to now this? Yeah, it was a in every way. Everything was so different. The weather, the creatures around, you know, with the whistling toes, which I found very fascinating. I loved that. It was a very early impression when we arrived. It was night. And you heard all these whistling toads as we drove up to um, Havendale. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I grew to love the lizards, which I found a lot of Jamaicans didn't share my view on that. And, um, <laughs> and the the language, I mean, my dad spoke with a sort of a Jamenglish, if you could coin it as that, <laughs> a, a Jamenglish accent, but mm -hmm. mostly Jamaican. Um, but, you know, to be surrounded by people who all spoke with that heavy Jamaican accent was um, quite different for me. The food, you know, and um, and then, of course, the music. Mm. Uh, but I have to say, Jamaica has a... They don't just have Jamaican music on radio, you know, especially at that time. We had a lot of um, R&B and um, country and Western and, you know, um, American music, I guess, mainly. Um, so I still got a lot of exposure to different genres, but um, reggae was still quite, um, I'd say a bit alien to me still, even though dad had a few in his collection. Uh, but the first reggae tune that really seeped through was um, John Holt's Alibaba. I remember that. Big, big song there. That was, a, yeah. that's a classic John Holt right there. Yeah. And when did you actually, so that now you're in Jamaica, this big, huge culture shock, you were back home in England, you like the Beatles and stuff. So when did you discover your voice or when did you actually discover music in Jamaica? Um, well, living with my cousins, they had a little uh, battery operated record player. So mm -hmm. we used to, I could play 45s and LPs on that. So, and they had quite a few um, R&B songs, so I had a lot of exposure to um, American R&B music. And then, as I said, on radio, I was drawn to the um, country and western and um, pop music and reggae. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so that, that was my introduction to music there. Uh, then going to eventually high school, um, I guess I started singing a lot to myself, but in the classroom. And then my classmates would say, hey, you sound good, you know, you sound, I thought the radio was on, you know? <laughs> and then they'd start making requests and I'd happily, you know, grant these requests and be singing different songs mm -hmm. uh, and getting into trouble for it, of course, because you're not supposed <laughs> to be doing that in the classroom. <laughs> um, and then, you know, there'd be school concerts and they'd egg me on to take part because I've always been quite a shy person. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, my voice, I didn't have what I considered to be a real singing voice. It was a, I didn't know at the time, but it was a, it's a falsetto voice that I sing in. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's what I had and that's all I developed. I never did voice training. So I have not developed that, um, what they call a natural voice. Mm -hmm. So I use it, um, I use it when I sing, but I use it the way people use a falsetto. 
that's how I use my natural. So um, yeah, so that that gave me encouragement, the, the my classmates' approval, and um, but nothing more. I mean, family didn't pay it any attention, um, and then eventually it was after I left. No, I, I was in sixth form. I remember when I met Errol, who is my husband. Um, at the time, he was my boyfriend, and he had heard me singing, and he said, um, "Oh, you, you know, you don't, you sound quite good. Um, I've got some songs, you know, because I write, and I've got some songs. Could you put them on a cassette for for me? Because in those days, it was just audio cassettes we mm -hmm. had." And I said, "All right." I said, "But can you sing? How am I going to know what these songs <laughs> sound like?" And he said, "No, I I can't sing." I said, "So is that going to work then?" <laughs> Anyway, he did his best and he sang these songs to me that he had written and it was a struggle, I tell you, because he'd sing a line and I'd go, no, hold on, what do you, do you mean da 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 or da 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 because, you know, yeah. the notes are sort of in between and he'd say, it couldn't be that, it must be the, okay, okay, all right. <laughs> and, you know, with trial and error, we got there and he's got a great sense of rhythm, so he banged out the beat on a table and, you know, I, we had two cassette decks so I could put the lead on a cassette and then flip it to another one and do the harmonies and mm -hmm. layer some harmonies on. Uh, I wasn't taught harmony, I think I just had that naturally. And um, eventually we ended up with this cassette with Errol's songs and my singing on to just a, a table drum. Yeah, wow. Um, and this was, and what year would you say this was before you actually got into the industry here? That would have been around 79. Mm-hmm that we did that cassette maybe about 79 yeah and what was the intention so then now okay you have the voice he writes the songs okay that's good mm -hmm. so then what was the next move or what was the intentions after this what was the cassette supposed to do yeah so we were he just had this idea that because he loved writing and we thought the songs were pretty good that you know, maybe somebody in jamaica might be interested in voicing one of them mm -hmm. so we started trying to find people who were in the industry to let them hear this cassette and decide, you know, was it worthwhile pursuing it or not? So one of the first people we had approached was a guy called Alla Irving Lloyd, who was the, one of the keyboardists in a group called Chalice. I don't know if you've heard of them. Mm -hmm. They were very popular um, in Jamaica at the time. And uh, so anyway, it went from hand to hand, you know, various Jamaican personalities got a listen of this cassette and gave approving sounds and eventually it, it ended up at Joe Gibbs' studio. Mm -hmm. And um, so then we were told, well, all right, they've got the cassette, but, you know, they're not going to listen to it right away. We have to, you know, they've got a huge backlog of people that they're dealing with. So mm -hmm. come back and that that became a very, very familiar refrain. You know? <laughs> no, we can't see it this week, you know, sorry, come back next week, yeah, next mm -hmm. week. And that went on for quite a few months mm -hmm. until eventually Joe Gibbs had uh, his main engineer was called Errol Thompson, E.T. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he was like Joe Gibbs' right-hand man. And eventually he came to us one day when we were waiting in the queue and he said he had the cassette and he said, yeah, it's all sing band this tape, yeah. And I said, well, that's me. And he said, eh, all right, yeah, we want to do something with you, you know. Mm -hmm. um, all right, we're going, yeah, we're going to give you a song to do. Not one of these yet, you know. Mm -hmm. So then the very first song they presented to me was Do That To Me One More Time, which was a song popularized by mm -hmm. Captain and Tennille. Mm -hmm. 
and I recorded that, and but it wasn't released in Jamaica. It was only released in the Bahamas for some strange reason. Okay. I think it was like they were just testing the market maybe because I guess I sounded a bit different from anything else that they had put out before and they weren't too confident. I don't know. <laughs> um, but then, you know, I passed that test. They were happy enough with that. So then they said, all right, now we have this tune. I want you to do this tune. And that was Someone Loves You, Honey, um, Charlie Pride's mm. version. Okay, so before we even get there, was yeah. your whole intention, now that you guys have this cassette, you guys are going around the studio, was your whole intention to actually become a singer or you're just going along with the plan, whatever happens? No, type of thing? I was just going along with it because although I loved singing, I had never thought of singing as being a career because my first loves were art and drama. And those were the things that I didn't have a clear idea of what I was going to do with them, but that I knew that those were the things I loved. And so I figured I was going to pursue one of those things as a career, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so this singing thing, I don't know, we just got caught up in it and you're being told to come back and come back and you just kept doing it thinking, okay, well, maybe something will come out of this. We just do it, you know, mm -hmm. two young people just going along with the flow. And, and see um, where you end up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Crazy. Okay, so they present you now with this song, Charlie Pride. Originally, it's a country song, but this yeah. is sang from a male's perspective. So, how yeah. was it that you were able to sing it now from a female's perspective and put your own spin on it right out the gate? Yeah. Well, um, the lyric, the lyric could easily translate from one gender to the other, mm. um, and I. I did have, I did kind of like a country and western vibe as well, so it wasn't too difficult. I don't think it was too difficult. Uh, I was very nervous though because, you know, I as I said, it wasn't my intention to to be there for to be a mm -hmm. singer, uh, but I just gave it my best shot, and um, you know they were happy with it. And then they said, "Well, all right, listen out for it. You know, you're going to hear it on the radio soon." And we're like, "Wow." Gonna have a song on the radio. <laughs> what was that, even that process like? Because this is your second time in the studio. What was this process like now recording a quote unquote real song ready to yeah. go? What was that like, especially in a studio like Joe Gibbs at that time there? I found it nerve wracking because there were just all of these guys hanging around and, you know, established people. And I was just this little light skinned person out of nowhere you know <laughs> coming to come and sing a song that you know and i had no experience with recording you know mm -hmm. wearing a headphone everything was just it was all quite novel mm -hmm. but um yeah they were encouraging they gave encouraging words and yeah i did it and mm -hmm. um and we listened to that radio boy every day. We were checking that radio. When are they going to play this tune? When is it going to happen? And then one day, ah, there I am. Ah. But it was funny, you know, when it when it was first being played. Um, I remember there was a particular DJ, a female. She played the track and she said, "And there's the fine sound of Brother J C Lodge." Eh? <laughs> brother JC Lodge, where'd you get that from? Oh, that could be a brethren <laughs> with that high voice. And so I actually called the radio station, you know, I called mm -hmm. them and I said, Hi, I just wanted to explain that, you know, I am JC Lodge and I, I'm not a guy, I'm a mm -hmm. woman. And she said, Oh, and she was a little bit offended. She said, Well, how was I supposed to know, you know? I guess the initials, they weren't used to having a, an initial type name for a female. I think that's what threw them. Mm -hmm. 
But hey, how about the voice, eh? <laughs> hey, I'm 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 just saying, right? And how even even before we go too deep into that there, how did you come up with your stage name? I remember Joe Gibbs, who was this very fatherly, soft spoken guy who wasn't all that honest to be on, to be truthful. <laughs> okay. And you know, but he had this really fatherly nature and he called called me in one day when they were, you know, nearly ready to release and he said to me, um, what name would you like to sing under? And I said to him, I don't like the name June that I was given. So I definitely don't want to use that. I want to be my first name initial and my middle name initial. So JC. And he said, oh, okay. And then he puts out the album that I did for them with Someone Loves You Honey on it. And there it was, June Lodge. <laughs> oh my goodness me, these people. Mm -hmm. So to this day, there are still people that, you know, fans who will call me June and they, they don't know how much I hate it. They don't know because I've always hated that name. Mm -hmm. But most people know me as JC, which I prefer. JC. Okay, yeah. I get that there. Okay, so then you come out. So then now you heard the song on the radio. It's happening. What did, what were the next moves for you at this time here now? Was that song as big when it first came out or, it take a while, or took a while for it to really catch well, it. It came out in September 1980, and by mm -hmm. December, it was number one on all the charts in Jamaica. It was just wow. mind-blowing for us. We just mm -hmm. didn't know what the heck was happening. It was mm -hmm. just, it seemed all so fast, you know? And then we heard that it was doing well overseas, but we didn't know how well. That was kind of a, a little bit hidden from us. Mm -hmm. And it was only when, uh, about 1981-ish, going into 82, that um, we found out that it was Song of the Year in Netherlands and wow. had earned gold and platinum discs because we were invited over to, you know, perform and to do some press and so mm -hmm. forth. And um, yeah, that was, um, that was an eye opener. Mm -hmm. and, and then we found out as well that it was doing well in all the ethnic markets worldwide mm -hmm. all, all the west indian markets worldwide okay and where did that take you did that did you start traveling after you put out that song or you actually recorded the album and then started traveling yeah we did the whole album first because it was the the single and the album that followed it that did well in the netherlands mm -hmm. so yeah no no traveling had started really until after that mm -hmm. and, and where then, was one so netherlands was the first place that you went uh, from what I recall, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think Netherlands was the first. Yeah, that that's wild. We're talking about Jamaica to Netherlands, especially in those times. That's almost like a lifetime away because there's no internet. So it's like, how is yeah. my music all the way out here? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how it got there. You know, must have, mm -hmm. Joe Gibbs must have had some good distribution going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know that. I think we met a guy from Suriname and he said he was a DJ. You know, it's coming back to me slowly. Yeah, a guy from Suriname because they have a lot of Surinamese in the Netherlands, in Holland. Mm -hmm. And he, he was a DJ and he heard the tune and um, loved it and, you know, played it a lot and presented it to other people. And this was how the company that brought us over, the distributors, um, mm -hmm. discovered it, yeah, through him. 
because I know that song there, I think there's two versions. You could correct me if I'm wrong. One with you by yourself, and then yeah. a second version with um, Prince Mohammed in it, yes. which is AKA George Nooks. That's correct. And that's the version that did very well in the Netherlands, the one with Prince Mohammed. Okay, because if I remember again, you could correct me. I've seen you performing it somewhere, and it said Prince, you and Prince Mohammed, but the person did not look like Prince Mohammed at it all. It just not, looked like <laughs> it wasn't Prince Mohammed, and that's really unfortunate because mm -hmm. uh, when we went to the Netherlands, they, they, you know, we were just two green naive people, you know, with no mm -hmm. experience in the music business whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And they told us that they could set us up with some shows, you know, would I be interested in that? And I said, mm, do I have to? <laughs> That's to show you where I was at at that point. Mm. I, I didn't really, you know, as I said, it wasn't a plan. I was kind of just thrown into this arena and wasn't ready for it. And so I tried to do as few shows as possible, which I could kick myself for now. <laughs> And, uh, and then they also said to us, oh, we've got this, we've got a guy, you know, we found a great guy, he's a great dancer. He's going to, you know, when you do these um, track dates, because it was never with a band then, it was just track mm -hmm. dates because that was um, more economical. You know, it would just be you and, a, and your track playing in the background. They said, we have this guy to perform with you, you know. I said, oh, really? Yeah, his name is Patrice. He's a Surinamese young man and very good dancer. And he knows the song, you know, backways. He can mime very well to the male part. That's um, Prince Mohammed's part. And I just said, oh, okay. I mean, it was just something we were told and you just went along with it, you know? So he was a very nice young man, you know, and he added something to the performances because I don't think I was doing all that much myself. <laughs> Um, yeah, but, you know, in retrospect, you think, but then, you know, why we should have somehow, you know, put our feet down and no, 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 we can't have that. Mm -hmm. We've got to have the authentic person. But I didn't even know. Yeah. I don't think we knew um, George Nooks at that time. You know, I had met a few people down at Joe Gibbs, but I don't remember if I met him then. So and we had no links with these people to say, all right, let's go go get in touch with him, you know. So it wasn't really in our hands, you know. But if it, if something like that happened now, of course, we would say, what? Bring somebody else to mime to this person's voice? You're joking. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, experience, and, eh? Yeah, 100% correct. And why did you guys actually come up with a remix? Because I figured that the, the song with you by yourself was doing very good. Why did they decide to add Prince Mohammed at that time there? I think it was just a thing that was done. You know, if you had a song, you would put a DJ on it just to have a version, you know. It was probably the flip side of one of the singles. And then some people took to it more than the just the vocal, just my vocal. So, yeah. Got you. Okay. And then now you came back from the Netherlands. I guess at this time you're still trying to process, hey, I'm smack dab in the middle of the music business with a number one song and album. What do I do next? Were you still processing like, okay, I want to go forward or was it a, um, I'm not really sure at this point here. Yeah. I think I, we had decided that this looks like something we should stick with for sure. But um, I was still, both of us were still inexperienced because it was always Errol and myself together, you know, in the situation. Uh, but he being the onlooker, I know that when I, when I went on stage to do my performances, he would be there, you know, to 
sort of giving me my critique afterwards and say, you know, you've got to move. You can't just stand up yeah. there like that. You look frozen. Mm-hmm. You know, do something. Speak to the people. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, move your head, shake your hair, mm-hmm. do something. <laughs> mm-hmm. And because um, you know you're not seeing yourself, you need that kind of feedback. And um, mm-hmm. he he gave me that. So with in time, I got more comfortable with it and started thinking, started taking it more seriously, and sort of thinking about what my image really was and. You know, what did I, what type of music did I really want to do or what type of songs, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it took a while to get to that point. I get you. Okay, so then now the whole album is out right now. How many tracks was on that album there? Mm, I don't remember, you know. Could be 12. I, I don't remember, to be honest. Okay. I've got, did you... I've got all the albums downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> was there any other hits that came off of the album there? Yeah, we had More Than I Can Say... Um, make it up to you, or was that on the following album revealed? I'm not, you know, I always praise Errol because he remembers these things so well. I now remember what songs I were on what albums because I've got 12 albums now. But, um, make it up to you definitely was, um, another number one, and uh, more than I can say. And uh, I think I've gone into the second album now. Mm-hmm. You Can Dance was another. Uh, top well it, I went to number two I don't think you can dance main number one mm-hmm. so yeah but by that time we started working with Willie Lindo Willie Lindo okay so then before that because again the big hits was someone love you honey massive hit massive massive and then it seems like either more than I could say or make it up to you was probably the second one to go out of the park at that time there I'm not sure because they were both more than I can say songs. more than I can yeah. say yeah how did you come up with that one there? That's another cover song. Because mm-hmm. at that time, most producers, especially if they were working with women, that's mm-hmm. what they felt women were best at, to mm-hmm. sing. Or maybe they just felt more confident that, you know, this is a song that's already made it, so mm-hmm. <laughs> it's less of a gamble to, to get, mm-hmm. you know, somebody to sing something that they're they are already um, sure people mm-hmm. will like, you know? So some of we got two of Errol's songs got included on the first Someone Loves You Honey album because we begged for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they were, they were good songs, but it's just at the time, as I say, you know, they didn't, well, who was I? They didn't see us as anybody with, um, we didn't have any credentials, you know. Mm-hmm. But they liked those songs mm-hmm. enough to put them on, so we were grateful for that. Uh, but... As we went along, we found that um, it was difficult to push original material. I think maybe not so much if you were a male. I don't know. So from a producer standpoint or from the general public standpoint at that time there? Producers. Mm-hmm. Producers, because they decided, you know, what you did. They're the and one taking it from there. Okay. Yeah. Another massive hit in this journey. Massive, massive, massive. Make it up to you. How did you come up with that song and why did you decide to record that song there in particular? So, Make It Up To You was written by Willie Lindo, who we started to work with. Well, we, we worked with him when we were at Joe Gibbs because mm-hmm. Willie Lindo was a musician that they often called on because he's very talented, not just as, an, as a musician, but as an arranger and also mm-hmm. as a writer. And so when we left Joe Gibbs, we were keen to work with Willie because, you know, we wanted to be with somebody that we were familiar with and trusted and 
thought had talent. And uh, so Willie and Errol um, collaborated on that song, Make It Up To You. And that was um, put on the album that Willie produced, which mm -hmm. was Revealed was the name of that album. And what did that song do for your career at that point there? I think it just um, helped to cement that, you know, I wasn't a one hit wonder, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because that's a big one. And that one there came out as a single and on the album also. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I remember, as I said, you go to any basement party at that time there, because I think this would be early 80s, like 81, 2, 3, yeah. anywhere in between there. You go to any basement party, guaranteed they're playing. But the thing with that song there, it sounded like Where are these basement reggae? parties you're talking about? Hmm? Where are the basement parties you're talking about? In Toronto. In because, uh -huh. yes, we're in Canada. So anywhere yeah. in Toronto you go, that yeah. basement party, that's what they're playing right there. But even right. at that time there, it sounded like reggae, but it didn't sound like the other reggae stuff that was out at that time there. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. hmm. Um, I don't know. The, the music to me is typical reggae music. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But maybe you weren't getting a lot of the reggae that was in that genre. Maybe mm -hmm. you weren't getting so much of that in Toronto. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. It, it had a, a more refined. It, you wouldn't go oh. to like a stereograph and hear them playing it. You'd have to go mm -hmm. to somewhere more refined to hear mm -hmm. that song. But it was a massive monster of a song. Okay. Good to uh, know. <laughs> big, big song there. All yeah. right. And in this journey here now, this is when you came across another song here, Telephone Love. Oh, that's okay. what, that's quite a few years. That's quite, okay. How, ma <laughs> how many years are we talking about between Make It Up To You and Telephone Love? So Make It Up To You would have been about 1981, 82. Mm -hmm. And then um, Telephone Love was 88. Okay. Yeah. No, that's a seven years. We got to go back for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then now you have out this album. What were you doing now? How was your career taken off at this time when they have Make It Up To You? Um, well, I'd begun to get a little bit more used to being on stage, performing. Mm -hmm. I mean, as I'd said, my loves were art and drama. So it wasn't that I had not been on stage, but I always say it's quite different, you know, being a singer. You're just being yourself on stage, really. Uh, when you're acting, you're playing someone else, and you've got you've learnt lines, so you go up knowing exactly what you're doing. It's all rehearsed, you know. But when you're performing, it's much more free form, and you know you've got the crowd reaction, and you know you feed off of them, and you know it's it's quite different. And um, I wasn't very confident, as I've explained. <laughs> so. Um, uh, yeah, so it took me a while to, to find my feet on stage. I remember having a couple reviews that weren't so kind, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, which was a little bit off-putting. But at the same time, you know, you had to decide, are you sticking with this thing or are you not? Because if you're sticking with it, you just got to take on board what's being said if it's something that is fair, you know, and try and work work something out, get get yourself uh more professional you know mm -hmm. so was there was there ever a time in the early stages where you actually wanted to give it up say hey i don't think this is really for me i, I just want to go back to being june 
<laughs> no, I didn't like being June. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, no, I don't think I ever wanted to give it up. No, I just, I just wanted to be better. That was mm -hmm. that was it. I just wanted to get better and be become more comfortable with it, because mm -hmm. singing in the studio, you know, it's so much more controlled. You can you've got headphones on, so you can hear your voice back well. And as I've said, because I sing in a falsetto voice, you know, it's very important to hear yourself. And if you've got a soft voice and then you're on a stage and you've got lots of loud instruments, and trust me, Jamaican musicians always have to hear themselves <laughs> well loud, you know. Um, turn, up, turn me up, ma'am, why are you? Turn up this thing out. And he's like, oh my gosh, we've got five musicians or six or seven of you up here. Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, struggling to hear myself. So it's not the same as being in the studio. Um, but, you know, you've got to, with experience, you know, you can start laying down the law a little bit and saying, okay, well, I am actually here performing and I think the audience would like to hear me otherwise it's kind of pointless me being up mm -hmm. here so as much as you'd love to hear your bass the loudest uh, on instrument on stage I need to be heard as well so I'm afraid you'll have to tone it down a bit you know to get a good <laughs> balance and um, yeah so these are things that you learn as you go along and um, now you know well, not just now for, for years I have gotten to a point where sometimes I just feel like yes this is this is where I belong, you know. I I feel comfortable with it, if I've had good rehearsals and I'm yeah. confident co confident in the um, the musicianship behind me, mm -hmm. as well as the sound system. Those are very key things when you're performing live. Makes sense. And who were some of your musical sisters at this time here, where you didn't feel alone out there? Who else was in the business that you would actually connect with at that time there, if any? Um, I often worked with Pam Hall and um, and sometimes with Nadine Sutherland mm -hmm. because we we all did harmony um, quite well and mm -hmm. we blended well together. So we were in demand quite a lot in the studio recording for other lots of different producers and artists on their projects. So those were fun times. Okay, so you did uh, you did outside of recording for yourself, you did harmony for other projects also. Yes, yes. What were some of the projects that you worked on, if you could remember? Because I know a lot of stuff was happening at this time here. Yeah, I, a lot of them I don't even remember that I've sung on them. You know, I, I'll, people will tell me, you know, that they've read the liner notes and, hey, you're on this. I'm like, really? Mm. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, uh, but I do, you know, ones that stand out would be like Maxi Priest came and did an album in Jamaica and we worked on that Wild World. And... Um, uh, Peter Tosh, um, No Nuclear War. We worked mm -hmm. on that album. Um, those are the outstanding ones. I know I did um, Bera's singles, not not a whole album. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, lots of other projects that I, I, can't, I can't remember everybody, yeah. but we, were, we worked quite often. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is okay. So then, as we were saying earlier, so then between... 81 is when um, Make It Up To You came up, and then in 88 was when Telephone Love came up. So what was your, what were you doing in between that seven-year period there? So we had um, a few more albums because um, after Willie, mm -hmm. after Willie, we met Gussie Clark. 
So that's mm. Music Works. Mm-hmm. And Gussie worked, he, he, Gussie had a team of writers, which was good and not so good because he, some of them were outstanding writers, some not mm-hmm. so wonderful. And um, Gussie would insist that we worked with, you know, his, his writers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the first album we did with him was called I Believe in You. And I was fortunate to work with Bob Andy. Bob Andy wrote a track for that album and sang on it as well. So okay. I, I was quite honored to mm-hmm. have him. Um, but overall, the album for me at that time, I had started to kind of formulate what I wanted to sound like mm-hmm. and where, where I was heading, Errol and myself. Mm-hmm. And we both felt that we wanted to do something a little, what would I say, a little edgier. Mm-hmm. That, that was what we were thinking. So we did the project with Gussie, this I Believe in You album, and it's got beautiful songs on it, but I, we generally felt that it was a little bit too sentimental. Okay. I, again, we, I think we got two of our originals on that album as well, and one of them was called Nightwork, and it mm-hmm. wasn't a love song. It was a song that Errol wrote about a lady of the night, which is quite different for any Jamaican artist to be singing about. But, mm-hmm. you know, we, this was how he wrote. He, he, he didn't just write songs um, for women and feel that, okay, it's a woman's song, it's gotta be a sentimental, I love you and you mm-hmm. love me and this sort of thing. Um, so there was a bit of a fight to get that on the project mm-hmm. and Sly and Robbie worked on that project and they um, laid the rhythm for it. Um, it turned out pretty well, but um, it, I guess it didn't quite fit in with the rest of the project. Okay. And this was something that we would find along the way in my career that Errol and I are always wanting to experiment and you know do bring different influences into into the music along mm-hmm. with reggae. And then you find that um, it's, <laughs> if somebody else is producing it, they might feel like, oh, but that. That's, that's not what we're doing, you know, that's, that's, that's not reggae, that's you're bringing yeah. in something else, you know. Mm-hmm. And because there's, there's that fierce loyalty for some Jamaicans that if you're a Jamaican, you do reggae, that's what we mm-hmm. do, this is our music. And mm-hmm. I obviously i have grown to love reggae passionately, but I don't feel that I must only do reggae. I have other music influences and I like to experiment, as I said, with them. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so we did that project with Gussie and afterwards when he started talking about another album, we said, okay, could we do something a little bit different from that? Something with some heavier beats, you know? And so that made him think in a different way. And eventually he presented us with this um, rumors rhythm and said that Mikey Bennett, Hopeton Lindo, Hope and Carlton Hines had come up with, um, they hadn't fully written it, but they had this um, idea for a song called, so they said, listen to it and, you know, see what you think. And I remember getting this, you know, part of the song and trying it out and thinking, "Mm, I don't, this isn't quite what I was thinking of though. (laughs) Yeah, it's edgier, but it's not really not quite mm-hmm. what I was thinking because mm-hmm. at the time it's bizarre when I look at it now but at the time I remember loving um, Jump Up by Admiral Bailey and okay. thinking I 
I love getting on a rhythm like that, you know, something really <laughs> jerky, jumpy. I'd like to try that. Yeah. So this telephone love wasn't the answer to that to me, you know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I took it home and sang it and, you know, sort of tried to get into it. And I did get into it and, yeah, eventually it was finished and um, recorded. And uh, in Jamaica, it was rumours that was, you know, all the buzz. And my song was like a runner-up. There were so many other tracks on that rhythm that were good. You know, you had Lady G and yes. Dean Fraser and mm -hmm. quite a few other artists were on the rhythm good with good tracks. Mm -hmm. um, but Rumours carried the swing in, in Jamaica. But all of a sudden, we got feedback that in New York, it was just telephone love all the way. And we're like, really? Yeah. Why? <laughs> um, and, you know, the black Americans were just lapping it up. And, mm -hmm. you know, and then it got so popular that there was a company called Powell that took on the distribution because mm -hmm. I think whoever had it before that, I don't know if it must have been, who had that before? Was it VP? I don't know who was distributing before, but it just, you know, it was like too much for them to handle. And so Powell stepped in and they took it over and then they couldn't handle it beyond a certain point. So this rap label called Tommy Boy eventually, mm. you know, got excited by the buzz and stepped yeah. in. And um, eventually we got signed to Tommy Boy label, which was a rap label. Because if I remember good, Tommy Boy might have had on, I think, like Naughty by Nature and a couple yes. more hardcore rap artists they on did. it. I don't remember them having a quote-unquote reggae artist before they on that type any, of a label. None. Mm -hmm. They had no reggae acts. I, I was the first one. Okay, and so with Telephone Love, is this the original one or is this the one that Shabba was one. on? The mm -hmm. original one. Yeah, the original Why do you think that that crossed over at that time there too? Because, there, as you said, it wasn't really fast. It was slower-ish. So why do you think that resonated with the Americans so much at that time? Well, they seem to think that it was R&B you know, because I remember going around when we were doing promotion, we ended up at a few radio stations where the DJ would say to me, so, you know, tell us about this track, JC. This is it's an R&B track, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> and I'd say, no, it's not R&B, it's reggae. And then, no, 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 this, this isn't reggae, is it? And, yeah, it's reggae. So they didn't see it as exactly reggae. It wasn't what they were, what they were accustomed to as being reggae. So I don't know if it's the melody, the the vocal, I don't know. Something led them to think that it wasn't the usual um, reggae type of genre. I think it's the way how you probably sing it because you 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 float on that tractor. It's, it has a lot of different elements that you might not generally hear in a reggae song. Even there was talking at one point where... Yeah. The rhythm broke yeah. down when you talk. So it was, I could understand now that you're saying it from that point of view, I could understand yeah. why they would think that's an R&B song. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. was this your first time on a juggling too? Because was this your first time being on a rhythm that had several other people or you were on other ones before? No, I think that was the first juggling one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the first juggling. Mm -hmm. Yes. And how did how did you guys come up with the remix with Shabba now? Well, it wasn't anything to do with us. It was all Gussie. Gussie mm -hmm. did that. I I had we didn't even meet Shabba when the 
you know, when the that um, combination was done. Mm -hmm. We hadn't met him. We only heard it. Oh, that's me. And who's that? Oh, Shabba. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, people, the public think, oh, you know, they always have this um, vision of two of you in the studio at the mic together, mm -hmm. singing into each other's faces. But yeah. in reality, it's often not like that at all. You know, you, sometimes you don't even know it's being done. Mm -hmm. uh, some I have done others where I've worked actually with the with the person, you know, mm -hmm. but that particular one, no. So the first time we met Shabba was he he was on a show somewhere and uh, we were at the show and I was in the audience and he called me up to to mm. do that tune with him, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting, and I know that you guys also did hardcore loving together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was that right after? When was that song put out? So that must have been, so we were doing the Selfish Lover album. Mm -hmm. So Selfish Lover, my vocal was on the album. So it would, would have been after that album that um, Gussie, again, put Shabba, you know, so Shabba would, have, Shabba would have been at the studio one day doing something and Gussie would say, why put this tune to you know, mm -hmm. and you just make up something and go on it, you know. So it wasn't a, a intentional, like you said, okay, hey, Shaba, I have this song. Let's go do it together or anything. It was nothing no. like that. No. <laughs> wow. No. Okay, you brought up Tommy Boy here. So then now you got signed to Tommy Boy because of Telephone Love here. Yes. Yes. Okay. And did you actually put out an album or you just put out a single on Tommy Boy? No, they wanted an album and we mm -hmm. were keen to do an album. And the guy that signed us really brought us to Tommy Boy, Ed Strickland. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he he had a, some sort of a concept for how we were going to be promoted. You know, because as a, as you said, there wasn't any other reggae act that they'd had before. So mm -hmm. he had some kind of plan for how I was going to be marketed. Mm -hmm. But another sad story <laughs> he got drawn away by another company and mm. uh, you know moved on and so we were left a little bit stranded at tommy mm. boy then with no real clear idea of how the project was going to be dealt with you know we'd, mm. we'd put the album together errol and i were happy to have creativity you know so we were able to put lots of different types of um tracks on Mm -hmm. um, be free with our creativity but then we ended up with an album with you know um, dance type reggae more listening type reggae I had an R&B track called Home is Where the Heart Is and yes. by this time I, I had started writing because um, I'd mentioned Gussie before having his stable of writers which was a very clever thing because most producers did not have writers but Gussie mm -hmm. was very forward-thinking so he got this team of writers, and as I said, they ranged. So you had really strong writers, and then you had those that, to me, were like <laughs> high school writing, which mm -hmm. when it was presented to me, I was like, wow, I'm sure I can do better than this. Mm -hmm. And that's what prompted me to start, you know, because you'd get this song, and Gussie would say, no, it's a good tune, man. Well, I'm saying, well, if I'm going to sing this, I'm not singing that. I'm going to change that to this. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and, you know. So mm -hmm. with with that, it made me be a bit more forthcoming and start having more ideas lyrically. So I have to be grateful for that. And um, yeah, so by the time I was signed to Tommy Boy, I was writing. And so one of the tracks was this R&B track, Home is Where the Hurt Is. 
and they decided after Tom after um, Telephone Love that that would be the follow-up single. So Telephone Love is a dancehall reggae tune, and mm -hmm. Home is Where the Heart Is is R&B. So it's kind of unheard of in America to be in two different genres as an artist, especially a new artist, you know. Okay. So I think it was quite confusing to the public. Mm -hmm. uh, but they invested in a good video for this tune and the video was shown on a few platforms, not, not as many as there should have been. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started doing promotion, promotional shows. So that means that you are brought over, you know, your airfare is paid for, you're put up in a hotel, but you're not paid anything. And then you go around performing to tracks to mm -hmm. promote the, the album. So this went on for a while, but Errol and I weren't happy because we weren't earning. And, you know, we, as I said, there, there wasn't a, it didn't seem like a great plan to just be touring middle America, performing in these small venues to a group of white folk who don't know of you from Eve. And, you know, it didn't feel like it was <laughs> going anywhere. Sure. So eventually we asked for a release from Tommy Boy. And they were not too sad to say goodbye, to be honest, because I yeah. don't think they really knew what to do with me, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's unfortunate. But um, the good thing out of it was that the album, I think, was a good album. Mm -hmm. We got to be creative, which is what we love to be. And I got to do more songwriting, which I always love. So, And, uh, well, and that Home is Where the Heart Is went as far as 45 on the R&B Billboard chart. Okay before it came crashing down because <laughs> all promotion and everything stopped. It has a Sade-ish type of feel to it when you listen to that song. If you yeah. close your eyes, you would almost picture Sade in your mind while listening to mm -hmm. that song there. Yeah, I see what you're saying with that. That's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it was only so an album was recorded or formulated, but it was only a single that came out before. No, that no, the whole album, the, the whole album oh, came out because Home is Where the Heart Is was part of that album. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so we did the whole whole album with, um, as I said, quite a few of my originals were on it. We had dancehall type reggae, you know, more listening type reggae and R&B. So it was a real mixed album. It was mm -hmm. called um, Tropic of Love. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what year was this that, um, that album came out, if you remember? So that must have been... Maybe 1990, 91, maybe around that time. Okay. Mm. So then you guys, you guys left Tommy Boys, you guys left in good spirits. What was your next move after that, after leaving Tommy Boy? Now, was it to return back to Jamaica, continue in America? What was you guys thinking at this time here? Well, we wanted to make more music for sure. Mm. Uh, but we needed to... We needed always, we needed financing because mm -hmm. we didn't have the finances it took to create a project at the level that we wanted to be working at, you know, and having mm -hmm. the best of the best musicians because I'm fortunate that all the albums that I've done, I, I've had the cream of the crop in terms of musicians and mm -hmm. arrangers and so forth, you know. So we went back to Jamaica and um, we had met Gary Himmelfarb of Rass Records, which is mm -hmm. a Washington, was a Washington-based company mm -hmm. that um, promoted reggae music, mm -hmm. reggae artists. And he expressed an interest in working with us. 
he would give us an advance and we would say, yay, we get to be creative and we would mm -hmm. start writing and, you know, planning a, a project and hiring musicians and going to the studio and working. And we did several albums with um, Gary. Um, he's otherwise called Dr. Dread, Russ Records. We did quite a few projects with him and I'm very grateful to him for that. Okay. The only thing, the only problem he had was that he loved, he loved, um, what would I say? He loved working with Jamaican acts, you know, because he mm -hmm. loved reggae, but mm -hmm. he didn't seem to have good links for promotion. So although we did these projects and we got an advance to create them, mm -hmm. there was no big promotion. So they never mm -hmm. really went anywhere. That that portion there didn't work out because I know right here in the in the early nineties now I think ninety three ninety four mm -hmm. you had put out a um a kids TV show sing and oh, learn yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yes mm -hmm. because in nineteen ninety four I had my one and only pick me mm -hmm. <laughs> Gia yeah and having her. I mean, we had put that off as long as I possibly could. <laughs> I was a very reluctant mother, I can tell you that, because mm -hmm. at that point I was just, no, man, got to keep touring, got to keep working. And if I have a child, that's going to tie me down, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but she came along in 94 and I, I'm so grateful that she did, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so when she was little, I you know, being a new mother and all that, it's, it's like, how do I teach this child not to do this or to do this? And started making up little songs to teach her things, you know, mostly to do with social skills, like not butting in, you know, waiting, saying, excuse me, when there's a lull in the conversation and then, you know, waiting, that sort of thing. So lots of things like that, speaking the truth, etc. Lots of um, little songs would come to, to my mind that I was making up. And Errol would hear me singing them and he said, um, but, you know, if you get enough of those together, we could do a project, you know. So I thought, OK, yeah, let's do that. So we did one album and on cassette and then we did another one and we did another. So we had three and we aimed them at different age groups. So we had like a two to four and then you know, four to eight and then eight to ten kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And by that time, we had been selling them in, you know, Jamaican record shops and um, pharmacies and places like that and a few schools. And then eventually the Minister of Education at the time said that he would like to purchase these albums for every basic school in Jamaica. And that was a great honor. You know, we were so happy for that. For sure. So, and with that, then TVJ television Jamaica contacted us and said you know on the strength of your children's music we would love for you to do a children's show incorporating these songs so this was like wow that's a great <laughs> idea you know and Errol and I again we love to be creative and um, Errol is an IT man but <laughs> you know full of ideas as I said he's a very good writer as well and he also had gotten into video, so he had a good idea about filming and sound and all of this. But, you know, we hired a team of people to work with us. We had to get five sponsors to fund the project, and we ended up with a 13-part television series called Sing and Learn, which was the name of the albums, Sing and Learn, well, Sing and Learn 1, 2, and 3. So... 
Yeah. And how did that do for your career? Again, this is something left field, really outside of the box. Yeah. Was that something that you really enjoyed or you said, hey, you know what? This is something I could do. I, I We really enjoyed it. We so enjoyed that. But mm -hmm. working on the television show was, as I've said to people, it was heaven and hell because we never had enough time to get the each program ready. You know, we're mm -hmm. always pressed for time. And there were so many little segments that we had to get prepared, you know. So I was doing writing children's stories, short stories, trying to do the illustrations because I had a love for art and I wanted to do the illustrations. So I did them. And then we had to audition children and we weren't using children from a drama school or anything like that mm -hmm. because they didn't really have much of that going on in Jamaica. We just took. We just told various schools that we were having auditions for children that we needed for our TV show. And so we just got ordinary children coming for auditions at our house. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we would pick from that. So they weren't trained in any way. So then I'd have to give them some crash course training, <laughs> you know, in acting and, you know, whatever it was we were doing, a little drama, um, reading the story. Um, we had an IT section. We had a feature for a, a kid that was Talawa, which would be a child that was outstanding in any way. Mm -hmm. Could be a swimmer or whatever, you know. We'd feature an outstanding child. And yeah, so there are all these little segments to prepare and it was a lot of work. And then when you were filming, you had the cameraman always saying, oh, the light is going, the light is going, you know, because if the light changes, it spoils the whole shoot, you know, and it was... Mm -hmm. I tell you, it was a lot of stress and no sleep or very little sleep. But mm -hmm. it was also heaven in terms of being able to use so many facets of our creativity to put it together, you know, mm -hmm. really enjoyable. Because that's exactly what I was going to ask you, because I know you said arts, you wanted to go into acting and stuff. Less, so then yeah. now you have a TV show, so you get to use your voice and yes. you get to act a bit. So as you said, it was, I guess, a, exactly how you explain it it was heaven yeah. and hell at it the was. exact same time <laughs> yeah it was yeah yeah and then you know we ran that for a year and mm -hmm. then things started to take a turn in jamaica the economy was not thriving and mm -hmm. so at the end of that year i reapproached the same five sponsors and it was a lot of sad tales. No, you know, we can't take that on this year. Really sorry. We'd love to. But mm -mm. Mm -hmm. So we ended up with only three prepared to come back. And that wasn't enough. And so I was on the phone for months trying to find other sponsors to join us. But couldn't mm -hmm. find them, Bob's. So mm -hmm. that never continued, unfortunately, at that time. And then around about that point we decided that we had to make a move back to and this is back to the uk at this time here yeah mm -hmm. not something that we had imagined doing but yeah would you what was the i guess it was really the economy and stuff why you decided to move back or what was your reason there for was, moving se back there was to the several UK? yeah several reasons the economy was a big one because mm -hmm. you know that Sing and Learn program, we really put everything into it and it just became something that we just wanted to do at that point, you know. 
and um, for some reason at that stage as well I wasn't getting as many shows as I had been getting so Sing and Learn was filling that void also I was um, I used to paint and make craft as well to um, sell as another form of income and I was finding that that was dwindling as well the stores that used to take my stuff were buying a lot of imported goods that were cheaper Mm-hmm. you know, more mass-produced so they could be cheaper. And so I found my sales were not going as well as they had been. So, and then on top of that, the crime situation was just really getting to, to, to me, you know. Mm-hmm. I We lost a very, very dear musician friend. That was, wow, that was like another nail in the coffin for me, you know. I just, yeah. it was so disturbing. Mm-hmm. And uh, just the lifestyle I found that I was having where, you know, you couldn't really walk anywhere. You had to be always driving somewhere and you have to have your window open, the door mm-hmm. locked. And, you know, in your home, you got it grilled outside and in and mm-hmm. security lighting. And when Errol and I used to have to travel overseas, he would hire a security guard and a dog to be at this empty house to, you know, safeguard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and can you believe one of the trips we came back, we arrived at 12 noon. Mm-hmm. We had our, the, the lady that used to work clean for us and all that, she would co- come while we weren't at the house. So she was to arrive at 8 that morning. So, you know, we figured, okay, so the guard could leave by about 7. Then she would come in at 8. You'd just have that one hour when nobody would be there. When we got to the house at 12 o'clock, she was there on the veranda. House broke! I'm like, what? How? Wow. (laughs) In that one hour that nobody was there. (laughs) It's it's so wild. It was just ridiculous, you know? Mm -hmm. Getting back to the UK. Okay, and then I know when you got to the UK, you started to do some work with um, Jetstar. Yeah. We did. Yes, because what had, what had happened was we were at a studio one day in Kingston and we met Danny Ray. And Danny Ray was another right-hand man of a studio. So he was a right-hand man of Mr. Palmer. He did a lot of Mr. Palmer's productions. And we got talking with him and told him that we were thinking of coming to London. And he said, all right, well, when you come, you know, touch base with me and we'll see what we can do. So I said, all right. And then we came and we had big plans coming back to London, you know, Errol and I. I mean, my dad had always been back here, you know, in London. Okay. And he was and he was telling me for years, you need to come over here, man. Your songs are doing well. You need to come and support them. You know, people mm-hmm. are asking for you. But, you know, at the time we were busy touring elsewhere. And, you know, people don't understand that when you're an artist, you don't normally pay for your own airfare and go somewhere. Mm-hmm. You're you're invited somewhere for a show and that's how you do your traveling. So we wouldn't really have dipped into our pockets and just come to England. So it would have been a promoter or something that would have brought us over. And it, it for some reason it didn't happen. So, um, yeah, so we had this idea that coming over to England, you know, there's going to be enough touring and, you know, and my dad said, and don't worry about where you're going to live, you know, because the council will put you up somewhere. You're a family, because by that time we had our daughter. You're going to okay. get put up somewhere. They'll give you a flat, you know. 
I was like, really, boy, this sounds good. <laughs> well, when we, when we arrived, not Nagasa, mm. there was no touring going on because this so-called English circuit, reggae mm. circuit, that mm. done. Wow. That did done from, I don't know which year, by the time we, we came in 2001. Nothing like that was going on. Um, reggae had hit a high and, you know, it was it had been playing on mainstream radio. It was a, a, a music genre in its own right, acknowledged and accepted by, you know, the, the masses in England, not just Jamaicans, yeah. everyone. And for some reason, it's just lost that platform. It was no longer on mainstream radio. Mm. And what had happened was that people had started up these pirate stations which were just dotted all about the place with very few, you know, small listenership. Each mm -hmm. one had their own little listenership, but nothing en masse, you know. So that drive that used to be behind reggae was just no longer there. Mm -hmm. And if people are not hearing your music um, in that big way, you don't chart and then you find you, you're not puts on shows so that's it you know because it's all a domino effect it is it's a domino effect and then um europe there's europe as well but to this day i mean we've been living in london as i said from 2001 and we still have that europe market to crack we haven't cracked it yet even though i had the success in netherlands all those years ago mm -hmm. we've discovered that europe is a place that loves reggae mm -hmm. and they have touring going on there but their idea of reggae is it's got to be the message music. They don't right. see an outsider message music. No, that's not mm -hmm. reggae for them, mm -hmm. you know, for the most part. And having locks, I have to say, that seems to be part of the package for them. Mm -hmm. They see that as authentic. So somebody looking like me is like, mm -hmm. mm, what? That's, no, that's not a reggae artist. Who's that? Mm -mm. It, it almost so. seems like everywhere you go, it's always hard for somebody like you for some strange reason to fit yeah. into what's going on it feels like that it does feel like that it, it, you know the, the color the mm -hmm. um the, your background mm -hmm. you know the gender all of these things do play a part you know mm -hmm. you can't really ignore it it's how it is you know even with still having these massive hits under your belt it still leaves you in a funny situation at times yeah it does it does yeah yeah i think I, sometimes i think that if people hadn't heard my music first in jamaica and loved the music first from what they were hearing on the radio mm -hmm. if they saw me first i wonder if it would have had a different effect you know because well, you have we... Jam you have jamaicans that you have some jamaicans that think oh if you're light-skinned oh she's pretty with high color and mm -hmm. that sort of thing that mentality and then you have those who work oh, white woman, you know, so you, you know, you don't know where it stands sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, what are those crazy things? Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit, it's quite mixed up, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Crazy. But, um, Cause I know, cause I know you've throughout your 40 year career, you, your latest body of work for album is called, um, passion fruit. 
Yes. Okay, that came out in 29. When you listen to that album there, you could see, because in this whole conversation you've been speaking about creative, you and Errol are very creative. You could tell, in to me personally, it seems like that album yeah. really let you be as creative as you wanted to be because you didn't hear a someone loves you, honey. You didn't hear a telephone love. You heard a totally yeah. different side of J.C. Lodge. Yes, that album was a deliberate different sound because it was really Errol's concept. Mm -hmm. Errol decided that he's... Because when we were in Jamaica, another thing that we encountered was mm -hmm. payola. Mm -hmm. You know, it just got worse and worse and worse. And I, mm -hmm. I remember there was one point where we thought, all right, if we can't beat them, join them. We're going to mm -hmm. do this payola because we're not getting any airplay. And without airplay, people don't know you have a product. Just like mm -hmm. anything else, if you come out with a tin of peas, you need to promote this tin of peas or people won't know about it. Mm -hmm. So we committed one point to pay a payola to a certain DJ and it didn't pay off. It just, it didn't, it wasn't worth it. So mm -hmm. we decided again, nah, not doing it. Mm -hmm. And um, it had gotten to the point where if you weren't doing it, well, that's your choice. We're not, well, you don't exist for us, you know. <laughs> We play wow. the people that paying us, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's wow. how it, that's how it became. J Jamaican radio became like a dance hall kind of thing, you know, mm -hmm. or no, more like a jukebox. You put money in, and you you know you get <laughs> you get something out. That's the best. Way. I've never heard anybody describe <laughs> it like that. That's the best way ever. I like that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. So what were we saying? Passion fruit. About, so passion fruit, yes. So mm -hmm. passion fruit, Errol decided, I'm going to create a, I'm going to do some tracks and um, mm -hmm. we're going to make them dancey and we're going to work around the radio station. We're going to make this mm -hmm. dancey project and try and work it through the clubs because, you know, people will, people will dance to it. People, DJs mm -hmm. will play it in the club if it's dancey and people will dance to it and, you know, maybe we'll get some attention that way since we can't get this attention through the normal... Uh, radio, mm -hmm. so that was the, that was the reasoning behind that project. So he came up with most of the tracks. Along the way, we met an Englishman called he called himself J A Thirteen because he mm -hmm. had a passion for Jamaican music and also a kind of Latin flavored music, reggaeton. Yes, and um, he made up some tracks as well and said, "I'll you know." let you hear these tracks if you like any of them you can include them on your project mm -hmm. and because we were leaning in that direction anyway kind of reggaeton latin flavored reggae um so quite a few of the tracks he presented you know we liked them and included them so he's the other person that's contributed to that project and that so that yeah so that's um that's passion fruit that's the concept behind it so they're all my writing mm -hmm. on errol's tracks or ja13 tracks that's a good that's a good combination there between as you said husband he takes care of a lot of the tracks and stuff you take care of the writing you brought somebody else in so it was a win-win for all parties involved mm -hmm. you know i, I mean I, yeah, all right i got a couple more questions before i get you out of here 2021 <laughs> right here right now yeah. you just released your new song it actually came out a couple days ago called yeah. over on a divorce court rhythm we know right now this was a lion king music production yeah. how do you guys connect because i know lion face a baby face aka lion face from yeah. these days all right yes, yes. how did you guys connect from dub plate wise to now go into actually making a song yeah because we met we met 
lion face when he was a baby face mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um just through live performances and you know being around sound system and stuff we met him that in that way in new york and then uh kept the link going and another way that a lot of artists earn these days mm -hmm. is through making dub plates for sound mm -hmm. systems which are like ads you know to promote certain sound systems and you, you can't knock it because you know it's a it's a way of making some income so, mm -hmm. you know so um lion face has kept in touch with us and he's you know every now and again yeah i'm have an next plate for you you know and, you know you do a dub plate for this sound or that sound so we've had that link going for quite a few years and then um eventually obviously he's been doing production we didn't know he's been doing his own production as well until recently when he presented this rhythm to me and said, you know, I'm going to put some artists on this rhythm. Listen to it and see if you don't like it, because it's a wicked rhythm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I listened and thought, yeah, I really like this rhythm. And you know what? For me, every song, no, not, not every song I write, but if I write a song and I feel pleased with it, satisfied with it as a song, for me, it's like a child that I feel I have to give birth to it. Mm -hmm. So I listened to that rhythm and I thought, now, I'm sure I've got something I've already written that I think really would fit this rhythm. And I dug up a track that I wrote for some other rhythm years ago wow. called Over. Mm -hmm. And um, I sang it on this rhythm. And at first I thought, does it fit though? Does it really? And I sort of work it and work it. And mm -hmm. I played it for Errol and he said, that song, but you wrote that song a long time ago. I said, yeah, so it's not born yet. I don't waste my songs. If I think I've got a good song, for me, okay, it might have to be parked for a bit, but any chance I get for that song to be born, mm -hmm. it's coming again, God. you know? But Errol, he, sometimes he has a different view from me on that. He feels like, no, but you've, you've done that. See, listen to this now, come up with something fresh. <laughs> I said, no, no, I, I want to do this song on it. I think it really works. And so I sang it at you know, now our home studio and we submitted it to Face. Um, and he loved it. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, what? Jesse, yeah, man. So we did it properly. And Stephen Stanley, um, great engineer in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. We worked with him a lot when we were there. He is a champion engineer. And I'm so pleased with what he did with the vocal, you know, because mm -hmm. that adds a lot to it as well, you know. And yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with the outcome of that tune. Whoever the musicians were, face, we asked Face to tell us who played on this because we didn't have anything to do with the rhythm. <laughs> who yeah. played the rhythm? And he's start to well, so and so and so and some names that we haven't heard. And he was saying it, you know, just um, speaking verbally. Yeah. So I didn't write it down, and so I can't even tell you right now. I'd love to tell you who played on the rhythm, but I I still I can't remember. I just remember him saying that somebody, uh, the keyboardist was Papa San's brother. I remember him saying that. Okay. So I'm going to dig dig a bit further and try and get those names written down to tell you. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I, I'm very pleased with that rhythm and I think the song works on it well. And yeah. so I'm hoping, I mean, we've been getting some good feedback so far, so I'm hoping that this could be another breakthrough for me because about time I had another one. <laughs> no, you see the, the trick with it when you're artists that have classical hits, it's like 
do you, it's almost like, do I get a next hit or do I just tour for the rest of my life on these classical ones? But it seems like you being a creative, you and Errol being creative, you will never be satisfied with having this under your belt and just living with that. You always need something new. In fact, it irks me when somebody, I mean, God bless my fans, God bless them. Mm -hmm. But when a fan (laughs) says to me, oh, I love your song, I love your song. And I go, which one? I mean, uh, as I said, I've got 12 albums. Which mm-hmm. song are you talking about? But I know when I, when they say that, it's going to be either Someone Loves You, Honey, or mm-hmm. Telephone Love. For the most part, that's what it is. And mm-hmm. it hurts as much as you're, you're pleased for the fan and you're glad that you know this has had an impact on their life and you know mm-hmm. you, you feel you've done something positive. Um, but at the same time, as an artist, it's like, come on, I did that song in 1918. <laughs> That's, you know, what's that, 40 years ago, please. Mm-hmm. I've done so many songs since that and I've gotten into writing and, you know, I really want to be seen as not just a singer or a songbird as um, mm-hmm. some people like to call Jamaican female artists songbirds. Mm-hmm. I don't like that term either. Okay. Um, you know, I think I've done so much more that I've grown. I want to show that I've grown, you know. Mm-hmm. But some people just can't let go of the someone loves you honey on the telephone love. But... As I say, I can't knock it because mm-hmm. I'm still earning off of those things, you know, through shows or whatever. For sure. Last question um, I got for you before I get you out of here. Okay. <laughs> you've been yeah. in this year in this you've been in this space now for 40 plus years. Okay. At yeah. what point did you actually did you guys actually learn the business of the music business? Well, I have to say that there's still a lot for me to learn personally, but Errol has really, he is a very widely read person and he Mm -hmm. has read, he has bought all the books on this music business and studied them. And so he's got very in-depth knowledge of Mm -hmm. the behind the scenes stuff with the royalties and the percentages and the rights and all of that. Me, not so much, which I shouldn't be um, proud to say. But um, yeah, I, it's not, that's not really my side of things. I'm not so interested in that aspect of it. I just like the creative side. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I know the basics, you know, and he takes care of the rest. That would, that's what makes you guys a great team. You understand yeah. the 40 plus years. And I definitely, I got to say, congratulations on actually your 41st year in the music business for something that you weren't even looking for. You yeah. just happened to get into it, but it, yeah. it, it treated you well. And we, the fans, were happy that you found it also. Yes. You know I mean? yeah. oh. This is what I'm going to do. Before I get you out of here, I'm going to ask you to do something that I know is going to probably... <laughs> especially us. <laughs> it's almost going to cringe your spirit, but I still got to. It's just that this is what I got to ask. Can I please get a piece of someone loves you, honey, before I get you out of here? I, listen, I, <laughs> I know, I know, yeah. I know. <laughs> sure. Why not? <laughs> Only for the 80th thousand, thousand time this month, but hey, why not, right? <laughs> Yeah, because the thing is that I, you know, I'm always singing it because um, when I do specials, that's requested mm-hmm. a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so funny. Mm-hmm. Anyway, here I go. <laughs> I want to share your life. 
every minute, every day and night. And I want you to know that whatever you do and wherever you go, remember someone loves you, Sheldon. No matter what, you'll always be our DJ. Someone loves you, Sheldon, more than any other DJ in the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so very much. And again, it's just speaking to you is one thing, but saying, okay, let's turn on the singing voice. It's just so natural. It just comes natural. Yeah. And then you go right back to talking. Okay. Yeah. No problem. It's just Tracy Lodger. <laughs> okay. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. If they want to check out anything else you have coming out, you have your new single out right now, anywhere on social media or any, get a, leave any contacts, leave any big ups you want right now. The floor is yours. A hundred percent. Thank you. Well, the new song, as you mentioned, is called Over. It's on the Divorce Court Rhythm, rhythm. <laughs> and it's produced by Lion King Music, who's based in New York. And uh, there are several other artists on that rhythm that you're going to love. Maxi Priest and Marie Coke and um, Al Campbell. You know, quite a few um, great voices and great songs are on the rhythm as well. So I think you're going to really love it. And uh, it's available on all the download platforms. Um, so check it out. And, you know, you can ha also have a look at Passion Fruit mm -hmm. and give that a, a listen to. So you can learn a few more songs by me, other than Telephone Love and Someone Loves You, honey. <laughs> I'll make it up to you. <laughs> yeah. So no, Where can they check you on social media? Eh? Where can they check you out on social media? Oh, well, if you just type in JC Lodge, you'll find me everywhere that you want to find me, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think my website needs some updating, but all my music is available on um, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, you know, anywhere that you would download music, you can find me. So Definitely. there's no excuse. All right. <laughs> to listen to just telephone love and someone loves you, honey. There's 12 <laughs> right? albums. We get it. I understand. Miss <laughs> <laughs> JC Lodge, it's been an epic conversation. Thank you so very much. Your openness, you're willing to talk. Definitely, I know the fans are going to love this one here also. Thank you. I'm glad. I've, I've, I've enjoyed. I listened to the one you did with Nadine. And I found okay. that very entertaining and, you know, educational as well. It was good. You're a Thank good you. interviewer. Yeah, I like Thank your you. style. That means a lot coming from somebody like you that's been in the business. You, you've you <laughs> met the best and the worst yes. and everything in between. So that's You're so right. You're so yeah. right. And I have to say, I don't know why so many people on radio or people that do interviews that mm -hmm. are from the Caribbean, a lot of us, we don't educate ourselves enough. So, you know, they don't, they don't know how to ask questions well or the grammar isn't all that grand, you know. Uh, we, but we do have some outstanding ones, and you yourself, you're one of them, you know. So we need more people like you in the industry, you know, and those who are in the industry and have the love, but they haven't got that foundation that they need. They need to upgrade themselves, you know. Too many times I've been <laughs> doing interviews with people that I think, no, this is not your line, mate. 
<laughs> that means anyway. a lot coming from somebody like you. Listen, I know you've been busy all day. Thank you so very much for spending the time with us this evening. Let me give you an outro and get you out of here because this conversation, especially with JC Lodge that we don't see like this, has been epic. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. It was no fun. No problem. My, my pleasure. Let me give you the outro here. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is Muscle, and this has been another Two Line Music Huts Entertainment Report podcast, and we are out. This podcast is brought to you by www.twolinedmusichut.com.